Welcome to Women in Academia podcast with Irena, where I will interview female researchers to understand the challenges that women in academia are facing today. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy today to have Dr. Marika Van Uyten on the podcast. Hello, Marika. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Can you introduce yourself and tell me more about your current position? Sure. Um, my name is Marika van Uyten. I am currently an assistant professor of psychology at the University at Buffalo in the U.S., where I set up and run the Buffalo Baby Lab. Great. Thank you for the introduction. Can you tell me more about your background and what brought you to the research? Sure. Um, I'm originally from the Netherlands, so I grew up there and I completed my bachelor's degree in Dutch language and culture at uh, Radboud University in Nijmegen. Um, and so one of the uh, tracks within that program was the psycholinguistic, psycholinguistics major. I, you know, before taking the first obligatory class in that domain, I'd never even heard of psycholinguistics. I didn't even know what to expect. Uh, but once I'd taken that first class, I, I was hooked in. So not long afterwards, I was lucky enough to find an RA position at the MPI um, Institute for Psycholinguistics, um, also in Nijmegen. I was a first generation student and I never really quite realized that the professors who taught at the university there were also uh, conducting research. But being involved in this uh, setup and in the running of studies, that was really eye-opening. So I realized that um, that this is something that I really, uh, really enjoyed and, and that I wanted to explore more. Um, so after completing my bachelor's, I enrolled in the, at the time, brand new research program, research master's program in cognitive neuroscience. Um, so it was in the second cohort of students in that program. And so within that program, um, I took one year of classes, both in cognitive neuroscience and in psycholinguistics again. Um, and then I spent two years of almost full-time research and, you know, I really, I really loved it. So my first master's project was um, at the MPI Baby Lab. And then for my second project, I went to the University of Quebec in Montreal. And uh, after that, I started my PhD in psychology um, at the University of Toronto, uh, followed by a postdoc in Paris. And then I started my position at the University of Buffalo in 2015. Great. Thank you for sharing your background. Can you tell me what are the biggest challenges you have faced and obstacles you have to overcome on your journey? And if you had to start over, what would you do differently? Well, at at a professional level, I think, you know, every academic has experienced uh, rejections, right? So grant rejections, paper rejections, job rejections. Uh, I think that over time you learn to put things in perspective and to deal with it a little bit better. Uh, but that, of course, is never, it's never pleasant to, uh, to receive a rejection, especially if it's something that you really want. On a more personal level, I, I think I mentioned before that I was a first-generation student. Um, and I was... When I started, I was very naive to this whole concept of university. I didn't quite know, you know, I understood that this is where people get their undergrad degrees, but I didn't really, I was totally oblivious to it being a research institute as well. And so I didn't quite know how it worked. And on top of that, I wasn't really sure what to uh, study. I didn't really have a clear profile of things I was good at or what I really wanted to do. So in high school, I liked my language classes. I loved reading, but I also really enjoyed math and business and economics and chemistry. And so I talked to different people and people recommended different possible fields of studies and different careers. So, you know, I was recommended to study econometrics, um, law, literature, hard science. And like I said, I, I my interests were pretty diverse and I didn't 
really know what to do. The system in the Netherlands is somewhat different than it is, for instance, in the in the States. So you choose your area of study before you even start university. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was 18 and I loved reading and I loved writing. So I figured, you know, if I studied Dutch language and culture, that would allow me to read and write and it kind of studying. So that would be a win-win. But it turns out that studying literature wasn't really what I had hoped for. And so it wasn't until I took my first second linguistics class that I, you know, that I thought that I found my path. So yeah, in the North American system, you get a little bit more time to decide, which would have been helpful for me. And when I chose my field of study, I didn't even know that there was, you know, such a thing as, for instance, cognitive science. I probably should have known, but I didn't. And, you know, if I were able to change something, I would have probably chosen a different undergrad degree. I, I love where I am in my research today, and I wouldn't want to change that. But perhaps the road to where I now would have been a little bit easier if I'd studied something like psychology or cognitive science or artificial intelligence. Thank you so much. Can you tell me how do you manage your work-life balance? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't really know that I have a super great answer to that question. I don't really have a strategy for managing my work-life balance. I think it's important to maintain one, um, especially during the current pandemic and the physical distancing kind of resulting in no um, in-person social meetings. I admire people who do, who are organized and who do plan their times, their time efficiently. Uh, but my, it seems that my days rarely go as planned. So I kind of go with the flow normally. I try to be flexible, of course, within reason. Uh, but I tried to be flexible and, and that has worked uh, best for me. And I've pretty much worked at, uh, always worked at places where that's uh, possible. So of course, you know, when I need to teach a course, I need to be there. Um, and when I have meetings, I need to be there. But other than that, none of my employers have really cared when I do my work as long as I've done my work. And that has allowed me to be pretty flexible as to how I organize it. That's good. <laughs> I love flexibility in work. Can you tell me more about your research? Of course. Um, So in my research, I study how uh, children learn to navigate linguistic diversity, so how they learn to process language in our our, um, everyday life environment. So in the past, say, 30, 40 years, we've learned quite a bit about um, the milestones that children reach at particular points in time with regards to their language development. And what I'm interested in is how this speaks to infants and toddlers and children's uh, language processing in, in, in everyday life. So in typical lab procedures, in, including those in, in my own lab, um, children tend to sit on their parents' lab in a shielded room, and they listen to these very carefully selected Uh, materials that are presented over loudspeakers, right? So they're kind of like disembodied voices. And we know that's not how children um, hear most of their their language input. In the the real world, um, their language input isn't nearly as quote-unquote perfect. Um, So there is in fact a lot of variability that children need to deal with. And so what I'm interested in is is finding out how children cope with that kind of variability, right? So different speakers differ in in voice quality, they differ in accents, they differ um, in what words they use, they differ in how they build their sentences, they differ in so many regards. And even even native speakers make a ton of grammatical, uh, make tons of grammatical errors, right? And so I've been looking at how children cope with, with this sort of variability. How do they accommodate different speakers, different accents? How do they deal with grammatical errors? How do they understand language that is sung rather than spoken, so from song? Um, how do they deal with how people differ in, in, in how they select words? And um, how does the type of language input that the child receives at home factor uh, into this? So, so in my work, I, I try to characterize uh, language development, language acquisition, and early language processing in the context of this naturalistic input. 
Thank you. How old are children in your studies? Um, so we test children as young. In my lab, the youngest we have tested them has been about eight months, I think. And then we test them all the way up until eight years, of course, all for different yeah, yeah, um, yeah. studies. But we've tested them, yeah, as young as eight months and as old as eight years. Very, very wide age range. Yeah. It, it is very wide age range. And of course, each study um, yeah. selects children of of a different age range. And uh, because you're working with children, you know, when you're testing adults, oftentimes what researchers do is they select uh, undergraduate students that are enrolled in, in introductory in introduction to psychology. And for children, we don't really have such a rich database. So we do have a database in the lab, but of course, the, there's not as many uh, children in that database. And when they are in that database, we need to be uh, strategic uh, when we test them. So what we do for children instead is we test children of, uh, we test, we have multiple studies um, in the lab running for children of different um, ages. So we don't wait to finish one study to start testing the next study. I think that's most what most people in baby labs do. Can you tell me what are your hopes for your future research? Yeah, my main goal is to basically continue studying how children process uh, language within these richer communicative uh, contexts and how that integrates in our in our social and everyday uh, world where, again, we don't really experience those disembodied voices, but where, you know, language appears to be coming from real people. I'm also very interested in further exploring what kind of inferences children draw about um, speakers based on um, the, their speech patterns alone and how they use that information during subsequent language processing. So if you make inferences about what a speaker looks or um, is like, how does that then affect um, how you interpret what that person um, says next? And then um, my plan is to move to Australia, although that has been halted by the pandemic, but hopefully you know, things will eventually calm down enough for that to be possible. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. Can you tell me what are the top issues you see women in academia face today? Yeah, I think that's an important question. Um, I would say number one is the gender gap, right? So we still get paid much less for the for the same job than our, on average at least, than our male colleagues. Um, and given similar qualifications, we are perceived to be, or women are perceived to be less competent, less hireable. Women on average occupy much fewer uh, senior positions than men and, and they receive fewer grants. And, you know, maybe as a result, we are expected to work harder to produce more research, to take on more service, more teaching uh, sometimes, um, to advise more students and to nurture them more. And, and just in general, say yes to, uh, to more and, 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 and all of that just to get kind of like a shot at the same opportunities and, and, and treatment. And then, you know, on top of that, at home, women often carry more household and caregiving tasks. Um, and especially, you know, now in the pandemic, this affects women with children disproportionately. So that seems to me like a pretty big hurdle that we need to overcome as soon as possible. Yes, I agree with you. Can you tell me what is the one piece of advice you would give to a young woman thinking about academia or to women just starting out in academia? I would say try and not be too modest. So don't rule yourself out as a contender for a grant or for a job just because you worry about uh, not being good enough. Let other people decide if you're good enough or not. Don't rule yourself out because you've previously been uh, rejected from something, apply for, you know, positions that you think are a good fit, both in terms of research focus and in terms of uh, lab culture. Lab culture is important, as is mentoring style. So try and find someone, try and find an, an advisor whose mentoring style fits well with 
uh, with what works for, for you. Try and ask people in the lab what uh, the advisor's mentoring style is before you accept a position. Um, and also don't, once you are in a PhD program or in a postdoc, don't be afraid to communicate uh, potential issues if, if you're experiencing them um, with your advisor. Right? So in general, they want to help, but helping is really, really hard if they don't know what's going on. Um, and then finally, I'd say uh, make decisions that make you happy, right? So if that decision is to become an academic, that's great. But if not, then that's great too. And don't feel bad about not wanting to become an academic if that's what you think makes you happiest. Thank you. That's such a great advice. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening.